name is Dr. Leslie Sedleys. My pronouns are she, her, ella, they, them, ellos, and I am a licensed clinical psychologist. Hi, my name is Dr. Rios Lam. My pronouns are she, her, ella, and I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. And we are your therapist friends. Hi, Kim. Hi. <laughs> I'm so excited to have Kim on the show with us today. Kim and I go way back. Yes. We've known each other. I was reflecting on this this morning that it's going to be 10 years now. Oh, my goodness. This wow. fall. <gasps> Celebrate our anniversary for 10 years. I know. It's a, what is it? A decade. Yes. That's a big deal. Yeah. It is a big deal. So I I just feel so honored and excited to have you holding space with me today. And it's always fun to do these kinds of things with friends and longtime friends. Yes. <laughs> so I'm thank you so much for participating and agreeing to come on this ride with me today. Yeah, of course. You know, I've I've been really excited. I think just naturally we have a lot of of these types of conversations all the time and I remember you telling yeah. me you want to be part of my podcast and I was like ah <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. and it's not okay so it's yes but sometimes I feel like I get a little nervous when things get recorded but then I'm like you know it's okay because this is just a conversation that we're having and it's it's nothing new that we haven't that we're not both yes. passionate about and that we both value so exactly. I, you know, went from being kind of nervous to really excited. So I'm really happy to be here too. Oh, yay. Okay, good. So for today, I think because the audience and people who have been listening to this podcast for a while, they obviously are aware that I co-host this with Denise and are well informed about both of us and our journey on this podcast. But because we're having other folks come on with us and have conversations, clearly people don't know who you are. So I want to take the opportunity to just hold some space and, and have people get to know you a bit and tell us a little bit about you, you know, what inspired you to come into the field of mental health and just so we can get a sense of, of who we're listening to. Sure. So I am the kind of person that loves like origin stories. I really appreciate just the beginnings. And so I'm going to start with a little bit of the beginning for me. So I am a first generation college graduate. I was born and raised in Porterville, California. So shout out to anyone who's from Central California, <laughs> which I kind of rare, <laughs> but yes, yeah, Central California. I lived in a farm, which is always like a fun fact to talk about, like a legit farm with like animals and, you know, lots and lots of acres of, of land. And we grew all our own stuff. And it was just, we ate off our land. And I think that's just so special. I, I spent most of my childhood just living within an immigrant farming community. So again, it's a very kind of specific uh, group of people that I grew up around and was influenced by. I also grew up in a mixed status family which means I was the only one of my siblings born in the U.S. All of my siblings were born in Mexico, as well as my parents. They immigrated to the U.S. kind of in like the 80s. And I've seen really just firsthand the struggles that a lot of immigrant communities face, but also just the resiliency that they carry within them. And I think that's just been something really beautiful as part of my unique life story, my experience, my journey. 
and kind of getting to to this point now in my life where I love just working with those um, communities that I kind of grew up around. So that's just kind of a little bit of my kind of earlier background. But you also asked also about mental health, correct? like how I became interested in it. Yeah. So this kind of goes back to early high school. And I remember being in high school and having, having a moment where I had a difficult time to breathe and I didn't know why. So I was taken to the hospital because my parents were getting concerned because I was, I, you know, couldn't breathe and I had all these other symptoms. And when we got there, the doctor told my parents, they're like, oh, it's anxiety. Do you want medication? Medication will help her. And my parents were like, no, <laughs> you know, like immediately. Like, <laughs> went home, And I remember they tried kind of having a conversation with me. But then, then it was just never talked about again. It was just kind of like, okay, it happened. Let's try not to have that happen again. And that was that. And I was like, what the heck was that? Like, I was so confused. And of course, it was a panic attack that I was having, or that I had experienced. And then I kind of fast forward a few years, kind of late high school, like senior year, um, I ended up taking a psychology course. And that really sparked my interest. And I kind of started learning about some of these terms. And I'm like, I think that's what happened to me. And from there, I ended up becoming a psych major. And at the same time, not really knowing what that meant. (laughs) But I knew that in the field of psychology, it was some type of helping profession. So then I thought to myself, well, if I can understand what happened to me and why and what that means then maybe it can help others who have also experienced something similar to myself. And I think that's where a lot of just my journey really started was from having kind of that experience and then other things that were just happening in the family that I was wondering, like, how are there other ways to explain this? Like, it can't just be this one way. And I just became very curious. And from there on, I I feel like I've just been really blessed to be able to provide services, both English and Spanish. I think just using my bilingual skills, I've enjoyed doing that, working with community mental health settings, college counseling centers. I love working in college settings. And then I, as I was going through my graduate program, I realized there aren't a lot of psicologas, you know, like there aren't a lot of psychologists who are bilingual women of color. And that was making me pretty sad. So it, that encouraged me even more to pursue this field to, you know, try and even close that gap even more. So I think just along the way, there were little moments that I would just have that really encouraged me and pushed me to just, you know, continue going forward. And um, now I currently work in um, education. So I supervise practicum student trainees. I teach some graduate undergraduate courses Then I work with clients. So I feel like I have, you know, kind of these little pockets, these little spaces where I'm able to really just help others through different forms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's so beautiful. Thank you, Kim, for sharing your story. I I feel very much aligned with pretty much everything you said. Mm -hmm. And I feel like my origin story is kind of has some similarities. It all Mm -hmm. goes back to high school. (laughs) (laughs) you know go figure (laughs) at a time of our life where we're really trying to figure ourselves out and that or the beginning of of that Mm -hmm. because that is an ongoing process always but Mm -hmm. I think for 
some of us who experience mental health challenges early on, it mm-hmm. does bring up a lot of questions, you know, about what this really means. And especially coming from a community where we don't really talk about mental health necessarily. I mean, I didn't mm-hmm. growing up. My parents never told me what mental health was. And and even if it was brought up, it was a very sort of shameful, mm-hmm. judgmental way of talking about it. So yeah. yes. I feel aligned with what you're saying. And mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, that is probably why we got along so well um, in grad school. And I mean, Kim and I were what, like one of four or five Latina people oh, in our program. I think, and, I think that's a high number. <laughs> <laughs> really I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> It definitely felt like less than that, for sure. Yes. I, there must have been like three or four. And then mm-hmm. people naturally dropped dropped out of mm-hmm. grad school over the course of time. And yeah, Kim and I, I think from the very beginning, we got along really well. And it was nice also to feel like I belonged, mm-hmm. honestly, because she was there. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying in the beginning, we often have conversations like the ones that we're having right now. And because we have had similar experiences, I also Mm -hmm. imagine that what we have to say is also on other people's minds. Mm -hmm. And I guess this is really an opportunity to reach those folks and have if it at the end of this conversation, if someone feels understood, or if someone feels like, yeah, that's how exactly how I feel, or Mm -hmm. oh, that's what that means, or that's the language around this, then Mm -hmm. I feel like We've done our work. And if not, at the very least, have people ask questions and be curious about what we're going to discuss today. So naturally, as we have gone through the grad school experience, being one of, you know, and that's a common, I think, experience for most people of color going and pursuing higher education is there's less and less of us, unfortunately, as we go deeper and deeper into that, the world of academia. And what that also means is that we experience specific challenges that are unique to us because we are people of color venturing out into fields that weren't really made for us or made with us in mind, not as providers, at least. (laughs) And let's talk about why. So before we get into it, though, I did want (laughs) to sort of give a little brief disclaimer that what we're going to be talking about today is a little hard on various levels. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to sit here and be naive and think that these are, this is easy, you know, to just sort of step into the light and be able to share exactly how we feel. Because as we've built our careers, that also means building a reputation, right? Mm -hmm. And I have privilege to a certain degree being in private practice, because uh, the only person I get to answer to is myself. Um, And of course, the Board of Psychology. But being out on my own, I think, has helped me be a little bit more rebellious and radical in my Mm -hmm. opinions. But I know that that's not the case for everybody. 
Um, there's this dilemma, like we want to be honest, but then we also know that being honest also means putting yourself at risk. And especially when you've put so much hard work into Mm -hmm. being where you are today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and I think, you know, when we work or we're part of different organizations, different agencies, even after we leave them, it's, we still kind of carry them with us. Mm -hmm. Our name is still part of that. And I think as, you know, I'm learning you know, an early career psychologist. I'm also learning all of this and even just the politics that go within our field, which I'm just, you know, kind of amazed by like, wow, like this is real. This happens. You know, I was just a student a few <laughs> years ago and now it's like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm out here and I'm really experiencing and, and, you know, a lot of great things, of course, but then also realizing like, wow, there, there are all of these gaps here and, and I'm feeling it differently now being on the other side. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree. I did it. I, I think when, when I thought about, you know, jumping headfirst into this, this profession, I was just like, oh yeah, it's a helping profession. I want to be helpful. I want to be there for my community. I want to spread education. I want to be supportive. And then you sort of start seeing the systems at work and all the particular challenges that you must Mm -hmm. face, especially if you are outside the margins of society. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean when you're not a white cis male. So today we are going to be talking a little bit about professionalism. And this has been an ongoing conversation between us two for quite some time mm-hmm. and it we got inspired about this specific topic last year I think it was in one of our phone check-ins yeah <laughs> I think we were having a conversation over the phone and then mm-hmm. you were telling me about your experiences and mm-hmm. I was like wow we should talk about this <laughs> we should record this <laughs> But let's go back to that moment and that conversation. And I think some of the questions and curiosities that you had and that I had was about what professionalism is and what it is defined as. So for you, what has been your experience of what professionalism has felt like or implied as you've navigated this field? So I think it has been shifting. I think as a student, as a trainee, we were kind of told what professionalism was. And as I remember just going through through all of that and then kind of being on my own, not being supervised anymore and kind of being kind of monitored and told what that was, I think it started off by, it was a lot about the appearance, a lot about how you dress, what you look like, um, how even how you speak, how you sit, whether it's meetings with clients, there, there's a lot of just that outer, it's a lot of like the, the physical. And that was my idea of what professionalism, I, I need to sound very smart, <laughs> right? I need to make sure that even my tone, how I'm talking I don't even know what that meant. Like, I just need to sound smart and use big words. And I remember that was always intimidating for me because I feel like 
Spanish was my first language. And a lot of the times I like to go back to Spanish a lot, especially when I get maybe like nervous or when I get really excited, right? Any types of extreme emotions or feelings, I, I immediately want to jump back to my first language. And I think that's been an interesting thing to navigate through this field is I couldn't always do that and kind of feeling stuck in this specific space of I have to be professional. So if I say a word in Spanish, or if I forget something, then that's not being professional. And now it's not just me, but I'm representing, you know, all of the Latin community, I'm representing, you know, all other women of color, like it was just really intense. And looking back, wow, that was a lot of pressure to feel, especially as a student. But I think now I'm really starting to understand how professionalism really is is really about respect. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, gosh, it. I was having flashbacks while you were talking about being in grad school classes mm-hmm. and the expectations that are placed on you without really thinking about your culture, where you come from, what reverence to authority is. And it's always this constant conflict like oh well I want to say conflict more like contradiction Mm because it's like you're expected to show up and be smart and and speak eloquently and Mm -hmm. be on target but not too much Mm -hmm. and so it's like okay so then what are you supposed to do you know Mm -hmm. like where is the the happy medium I guess that's Mm -hmm. gonna be acceptable so I feel like for a lot of folks it's probably really confusing. Like what is Mm -hmm. the actual expectation here? And for us, we're having to navigate a world that culturally is very different than what we grew up in Mm -hmm. and the expectation of respect or hierarchy or Mm -hmm. communication is different. So Mm -hmm. I would agree with you that my, when I initially thought about professionalism, it's how you look, mm-hmm. how you sit, mm-hmm. what you're wearing, how your hair looks. And a lot of these things are reinforced through company and agency policies that d- pretty directly target people f- who are different. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can't wear piercings on your face or you can't dye your hair as a color that's quote unquote unnatural mm-hmm. and for those of us with textured hair you know mm-hmm. can't have you know race-based hairstyles you know which is now mm-hmm. in the more recent years in 2019 why the crown act yes. had to be brought up to protect people and it's like that's so sad so sad and confusing mm-hmm. and so almost ridiculous mm-hmm. that a person's intelligence, um, a person's experiences, a person's knowledge, credibility would be reduced to how they're wearing their hair or Mm -hmm. the kind of shirt they have on their back or Mm -hmm. even how they speak. Because Mm -hmm. a lot of us in our communities speak by storytelling. Mm -hmm. And that is not highly regarded in the the world of academia. Mm -hmm. So you got to get quick, and especially in the medical field, where 
I remember being taught as an intern, okay, you got to do like your elevator pitches when you're speaking to the doctors and you're, you know, uh, collaborating on a specific patient, you have to just do one or two liners because otherwise you're not going to get their attention and all these things. And I'm like, aren't we all here for the same reason? Why wouldn't they be paying Mm -hmm. attention? Why wouldn't they be present? And obviously, yes, the medical field is incredibly exhausted and people are burnt out and all of that. And I understand that. And at the same time, why are we perpetuating some of these things that aren't really working, you know, and this is how things get missed and how people get disregarded that actually have something very valuable to say. Like it just doesn't make Mm -hmm. sense to me, but I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that would disagree with me. Uh. Mm -hmm. And it, I think something like a phrase or a question that always come up for me is, will they will they take me seriously? And that was always a question. You know, am I going to be taken seriously by fill in the blank, by clients, by, you know, my colleagues, by, you know, the people that I'm presenting to? Will I be taken seriously if I wear, and then I would fill in the blank, you know, if I wear this top, or if I show up with these, this jewelry, you know, it was a lot of how, how can I be my genuine self in the room, while, while also trying to be whatever this professional is, um, I was being taught. And I think that was always really tough, because I was trying to find what that would look like for me. And a lot of this started happening because I decided to dye my hair, right? And I've always wanted mm-hmm. my hair. And, but because as a student, I was told that that wasn't okay unless, like you said, it was a natural color. And I think for me, like, I just love bright colors and I, I just enjoy all of that. And so during the pandemic, I decided, you know, I'm just going to dye my hair because no one can see me anyways. And I decided to just go green, (laughs) like just dye my my hair green. And I loved it. And I was so excited. And I started feeling kind of sad, like, wow, like I, I had to wait this long to start doing these things and feel myself because, and I just didn't know why, like, just because I was told this wasn't um, professional. And once the pandemic, you know, um, some of the rules um, kind of started, um, I guess, decreasing. People were going out a little bit more. And I remember feeling different, like, wow, you know, in in these work environments, in these spaces, what are people going to say when they see my tattoos? When, you know, I go in with big earrings and my green hair, you know, will I be taken seriously? Or will my intelligence be questioned, right? Will, Will I just be questioned? So not only was I already feeling like, I'm female, I'm a person of color. And now I have all these, you know, kind of physical features that people are seeing, like, how how am I being, how am I being perceived by others? And I hated that I had to think about these things. It just didn't. Mm -hmm. It's not okay. Mm -hmm. See, that's what I call privilege. You know, there are folks out there that don't have to even bat an eye Mm -hmm. or think about this. But that's not our reality. And I I love that you mentioned a moment ago that it's not just by other peers um, or colleagues in the profession, Mm -hmm. but you're also having to worry about the people that you work and are in service to. Mm -hmm. Because you can also get some judgments placed there. And so obviously, 
I'm talking about needing uh, a more of an open mind and open conversation on both ends, not just from the systems, the bigger systems, but how they've already infiltrated and been internalized in all of us. And of course, when we interface with people, then our encounters are very much influenced and colored by the messages that we've received about what Mm -hmm. a professional should look like, what a psychologist should look like. And it's unfortunate. I mean, I think I'm sure there's still people that believe that psychologists look like old white men with beards. (laughs) And you got two psychologists here who do not look like that. (laughs) So we're debunking, we're debunking that myth. (laughs) But yeah, it's just, it's a constant, I would say battle every day. You have to be your authentic self while Mm -hmm. still be part, being part of a system that oppresses us and Mm -hmm. makes us feel like we have to be something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think there's moments where it may feel like you're working in an environment where you're the only one and then you're also pushing boundaries at the same time. And I have definitely found myself in those situations where it's already kind of uncomfortable and I'm trying to kind of push some of those boundaries, but then I'm also kind of feeling alone and it's, it's hard. And I think something that is kind of consoling is knowing that we do have a generation now that is starting to kind of push back a little bit more. And, you know, like you said, it's, we're basically working through these messages that were coming from kind of people from these past systems, right? Internalized uh, people from these past systems. And so I think that we're slowly trying to change that and it is taking some time. I feel like there's a lot of agencies that say, you know, we, we want diversity. We want, you know, even like more people of color. We want just in general to be more diverse, but then when they bring people of diverse backgrounds, they don't budge in making any changes within their own agency, right? policies are needing to adapt to these diverse persons coming in, but instead they're kind of pressuring these people to now kind of needing to adapt to them. And then at the end, nothing gets really accomplished. You just have these people from diverse backgrounds, you know, just feeling now kind of oppressed and pressured. And this is why there's no sustainability in that a lot of the times. Yeah. And this is why these conversations are important and integral part of mental health, because we can't extend the responsibility on the individual when they're not existing within a vacuum. You know, you're Mm -hmm. a person that's navigating all these different fields and regardless of what line of work you do, this is absolutely going to impact you to a certain degree. It's kind of unavoidable. But I agree with you. That was actually something that I said on a on a panel, I think last year, where the question was, you know, what are some ways that I guess agencies or institutions can help facilitate, you know, more people of color coming into the field? And I'm like, well, you got your systems got to change. <laughs> mm-hmm. They got to they got to have space for us. And I think 
primarily what needs to happen is that institutions, agencies, systems need to take a look at what it is they're doing Mm -hmm. and how they can protect people Mm -hmm. and uplift people. That is how you are inclusive. It's not just about a numbers game, although that's the initial, right? If you have a whole staff of white folks and you have one person of color, that is not going to fit the bill. Mm -hmm. So diversity does mean numbers, but and but inclusivity means really changing structures Mm -hmm. so that like you said folks going into their professions are not feeling this pressure to change even Mm -hmm. though their whole the whole point that they were brought on was for their difference Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes because this is something that i've you know i know we've talked about before and and I've had conversations just with others about this types of this type of pressure that all of a sudden gets placed, right, on the BIPOC communities kind of going into these spaces because they're wanted, but then it's just they get there and then it's like an uphill, right, battle. It's an uphill to try and even make or help make some of the changes that sometimes organizations are wanting. And so I think that's where it can become just challenging with, again, how do you, how are you respectful, professional, but also assertive, right? And you're also Mm -hmm. kind of calling things out as you see them. And it can be really scary sometimes, especially if you're new in these environments and you're just trying to kind of get Mm -hmm. a feel for that. So, you know, I think that it definitely, part of that, I think for me and my own personal experience has been able to just kind of reach out to other mentors in my life that I know have been um, there and they're well-seasoned clinicians and just trying to kind of talk to them about some of this because it can feel very lonely. Right. And also people who, even if they are quote-unquote well-seasoned, meaning they've been in the field for a long time, that doesn't actually always equate to people that do have an awareness Mm. of these things. Because I know there's plenty of people that have been in positions of mentorship for me that mm-hmm. were so out of, they, they didn't have a clue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just had not done that, un, that work of unpacking, mm-hmm. you know, their shit mm-hmm. to really be able to meet me to have these conversations. And I did find that most of the mentors that I had that were the best were actually people that had just entered the field. Mm. So, you know, people who had just gotten their, completed their postdoc or Mm. people that this was their first job, you know, as a psychologist or just, you know, more community oriented Mm -hmm. professionals, because some of the ones that I had that were doing their job for like 15, 20 years said some of the most discriminatory and offensive things to me Mm. that I have ever heard of in my life. So it's not just, you know, about that, but also really finding mentorship in people who are like-minded and Mm -hmm. or can have an understanding of what it's like because, you know, the more you're in this field, just like with others, the, the more, I guess the more you're in the workforce period because of the way capitalism is set up, the more people become jaded by money and power and all the and six what success means and all these things that are tied into professionalism mm-hmm. that 
it's almost like we lose our humanity a bit. Um, so I, yeah, that's just like sort of two cents of reflection, you know, from what you were saying a moment ago. But I think, you know, at the crux of other parts of this conversation is, you know, clear discrimination, ageism, you know, racism, mm -hmm. internalized misogyny, patriarchy, you know, all these things, ableism. Yes. There are ways that things like th these isms get perpetuated because of the way policies are written in mm -hmm. certain institutions. And mm -hmm. then you have people like us who are <laughs> trying to navigate them. Mm -hmm. And then having language like imposter syndrome, which mm -hmm. I know I, Denise and I did a whole podcast episode about, about it. And I've actually transitioned quite a bit from my understanding of what imposter syndrome is. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I, I mean, I'm gonna be pretty radical here. I think it's a lie. <laughs> I feel like um, I, I'm gonna read a, an Instagram post that I actually my friend sent me and I was like, yes, I've been thinking mm. about this all the time. <laughs> the post is by the account insidevoices.io. And it's a retweet, I believe, interface thing from this licensed mental health clinician, Kenya Crawford. And she says, we got to stop blaming imposter syndrome when it's really just racism. And in the description, it says, feeling like you don't belong due to systemic exclusion and discrimination is not the same as lacking confidence. At a certain point, we got to call a spade a spade. And mm -hmm. that really hit, hit home for me because I feel like there's certain language that is used, you know, to describe something that is really just a response and reaction to oppression. <laughs> like, like, wait a minute. So now I got an imposter syndrome and that's my fault. Like, that just doesn't seem fair that I didn't, I didn't make this happen to myself. Like, mm -hmm. this is genuinely a side effect yes. of the rigidity and the discrimination mm -hmm. that I've felt you know going into the workforce so mm -hmm. it's just uh you know i think that's an important part of this conversation too is like being able to separate yourself from certain concepts and ideas of i think especially when it comes to professionalism you know i think for some of us and i'm speaking for myself now is like I get in my head, right? And I, I start ruminating. And after I do things, like it might be a podcast episode, or it might be a speaking event that I did, or even a post I made on Instagram. And I go into my head and I'm like, Oh, my God, what are people going to say? Like, was that was that not professional? Was I mm -hmm. this? Or was I that? Mm -hmm. And I don't I don't think it's fair to say that I have imposter syndrome, you know, like it's like my fault <laughs> having these things, but rather like clearly there's, I've lived a lot of experiences that have developed these stories in my mind about mm -hmm. who I am and who I got to be. And I think it brings a little bit more empowerment to me when I can see the separations there between me and the systems. So I feel like that is a way to sort of support <laughs> some change in that, like, 
I know that a lot of us are thinking about this. There's a lot of social change happening. Mm -hmm. People are making their own businesses, you know, creating things because there's some clear gaps in the way things work Mm -hmm. in our world. And a lot as much learning that there needs to be done, I think there needs to be a lot of unlearning. Yes. And that's how I viewed my professional development as well. Like, Mm -hmm. What I was told as an intern or how I was treated is definitely not what the message is that I would instill in trainees of my own now. So if that's what I'm saying, like, Mm -hmm. why, why is that even a thing then? Mm -hmm. Why, why did I have to go through all that torture, Mm -hmm. you know, just to have to unlearn it (laughs) and really come head to head to my authentic self and be able to present myself um, in a way that feels right mm-hmm. and just. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I feel like it's almost that kind of victim, um, kind of victim blaming, right? It's, yeah. It's perpetuating that victim blaming, that type of mentality. And it's interesting. I, I you know, I really enjoyed hearing that, um, that quote, just what you read. And I think I'm still continuing to explore for myself, like what does this mean? What does imposter syndrome mean? Because I've definitely felt a lot of what you've mentioned. And it was easy to just go to that term. Oh, that's what it is. Oh, that's what it is. And I think what happens is when we just use that term, it's like we're completely dismissing that experience, Mm -hmm. We're dismissing kind of like everything that we felt maybe um, in those moments. And then it's just kind of pushed to the side. And then until it comes back. Mm-hmm. So it's really not doing anything, right? That that word is just kind of a placement, it's like this holder, placement holder. And so I, I really like that. And I definitely want to dive deeper into exploring, you know, more of what that means for us, right? We're a very mm-hmm. specific group of, you know, psychologists in this field. And I feel like a lot of what you mentioned, a lot of the unlearning, yes, it's it's almost kind of like angry, right? Like, oh, like, yes. Why? And all the trauma that we went through, through internship, you know, and, and just grad school in general, like it's, it's nothing. I, I feel like no one ever kind of just told us, right? Like, or warned us about this. There was no way, like, I, I felt like, I don't want to say I went in blindly, but it kind of felt like, <laughs> no, I want to help people and I want to go to grad school, but not knowing just a lot of the different types of hardships that or challenges that were kind of just waiting there and then having like you said to unlearn that later on and something that really kind of struck me when you mentioned is kind of supervision and I have loved so so much being able to supervise and I think as I'm supervising I'm getting kind of these flashbacks constantly all these flashbacks with my own supervision moments the good ones and the bad ones of like oh I don't want to do this or go here and it's part of that unlearning because I don't want to pass this on to my supervisees, you know, take the good, leave the bad, but it's hard because mm-hmm. I'm really living a lot of these past moments, moments that maybe I wanted to forget. Right. Mm-hmm. I've had good supervisors, excellent ones, and I've had really, really bad ones. And I think as a supervisor now, I'm really developing even just my own identity within what, type of supervisor do I want to be? And yeah, I think it's just been, I I love this position 
And at the same time, it is very challenging because I'm constantly checking in with myself as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I, it'll be interesting what my experience will be once I am brave enough mm-hmm. <laughs> to jump into the supervisory world because I've been wanting to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's just it's a constant I think I'm in always in a constant state of reflection. Mm. It's just, you know, I think maybe my own personal work has helped and aid in that process for me. I, I try my best to be very thoughtful about my experiences and really try to find meaning and know what what feels good for me and what feels like it's a hard no. I actually saw a TikTok, um, which is how <laughs> most conversations nowadays are started. Um, <laughs> I saw a TikTok about this person who was basically talking about a conversation that they had with their family because they had tattoos and they got tattoos on their knuckles. Mm-hmm. And the person's uh, sibling was like, oh, my gosh, why would you do that? No one's going to hire you now Mm -hmm. because you have tattoos on your knuckles. And this person was like, if a person does not want to hire me because of these tattoos, then that's not someone I want to work for. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's the attitude. And again, that probably comes from a position of privilege because there are a lot of folks out there that especially immigrant families Mm -hmm. who don't have citizens citizenship status Mm -hmm. you know you can't be picky and choosy all the time sometimes you have to like out of pure necessity Mm -hmm. to stay in places that are maybe not the most ethical the most safe unfortunately Mm -hmm. it just seems like a need right Mm -hmm. so I don't want to be insensitive in that way Mm -hmm. however if you do have because you and I both have positions of privilege now. Yes. And we can't deny that. Mm-hmm. And so I I want to say that we need to own those parts of ourselves a little bit more so mm-hmm. that we can actually use our voices, mm-hmm. right? Because we don't have to work for people that make us feel shitty anymore. Mm-hmm. And I remember having a conversation (laughs) that should never be a thing, period. But I was having a conversation with my therapist also once and I was talking about, you know, how I've been showing up to sessions recently and how I've been really trying to just be myself. And I show Mm -hmm. up to session with hoodies and my T-shirts and um, really casual, you know, I don't I feel like I've tried to push myself from the needing to look like a quote-unquote therapist for people, whatever the hell that means. I just want to be me. And I want to work with people who are also want to show up as themselves. Mm-hmm. And if I'm showing up to a session trying to play a part, then I'm defeating the purpose of that encounter. Mm-hmm. And so I was having a conversation with my therapist and I was telling her about this. And she's like, oh, yeah, you know, when I was an intern – I had a supervisor and they were wearing a they were wearing like cargo pants and sandals and like a tank to Mm -hmm. our supervision session. And she was she herself was like, you you see clients like that. And then the Mm -hmm. supervisor was like, yeah, I've earned this. Mm. And and so she said that to me and I told my therapist, wait a minute. 
So she's basically kind of in some small ways reinforcing that this is just a known thing that people just have to quote unquote earn, whether that's with seniority, with years, Mm -hmm. with trauma, you know, (laughs) um, hazing, all of the above that you finally at the end of it get to be who you want to be. Yeah. Like your reward. Yeah. And I told my therapist, wait, 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 wait. I said, fuck that. Why do we have to do that to begin with, though? Mm -hmm. That's my question. Why Mm -hmm. is it that we have to do that in order to get the reward of being ourselves? Why Mm -hmm. can't we just be ourselves Mm -hmm. and then that be enough? So, yeah, I think (laughs) I've learned and unlearning a lot of the dumb shit that Mm -hmm. I was taught, you know, and I feel a lot better about Mm -hmm. myself showing up in the work just be me. Yes. And I won't lie. Sometimes when I have new clients and mm-hmm. I know that they're of a specific age or a specific background, I I look at my closet and I'm like, mm-hmm. uh, what should I wear today? I still have that. Yeah. And I'm trying to push my hardest to just say, fuck it, <laughs> you know, because I have that privilege. I have my own business. That person, if they don't like how I dress, like, they can go to anybody else <laughs> and they don't have to see me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if they value what I say, you know, that's what's going to come forth. Mm-hmm. You know, if they are having an experience of connection with me, that's going to come to light. And that's actually what's going to be the important thing. Not me having a nose ring. Like that's just, it's yeah. stupid. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I know that that's not necessarily the way that the world works, unfortunately. And I, I, feel like I have some privilege in in my own little corner of the private practice world, just kind of being able to do my own thing. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I appreciate just you kind of sharing some of those stories, because I feel like I have so many. And, and again, as I'm hearing you talk, I'm like, whoa, all these, all these memories. Are <laughs> yeah, it just happens. And I think, one of the most kind of just recent ones that I'll, I'll share because I'm still just like you said, like I, I still struggle with that is I think it just comes up randomly. And sometimes I don't even know that it's happening until I have to be really <laughs> in tune with myself is like, I, I love wearing, like I have um, like huaraches, right? Like kind of like um, mm-hmm. Mexican style of um, specific type of shoes. So I have huaraches and I have like some tops that are kind of embroidered um, they're bright, colorful, and I love wearing that. I have like a ribble. So like I, I wear different different things like that. And I realize that the day that I know I'm going to see like white clients, I feel like I have moments of like, whoa, like, is this okay for me to like, are they going to take me seriously? Or are they going to feel uncomfortable? <gasps> and I hate that. Help me out. <laughs> but that's exactly what goes through my mind. Like, am I going to feel, make them feel uncomfortable if I'm dressed in this kind of traditional like Mexican wear, because that's not who they're around a lot. And even surprised, like, and it it sucks, but I'm like, wow, like they're keeping me as their therapist. And I hate, I hate that I have those, they're brief moments, but they're there and it still happens. Mm -hmm. And it's like, why Mm -hmm. that is not okay. And I have to really continue just kind of fighting back in a sense. And I'm like, no, like I'm going to wear this. This is me. And this is what makes me comfortable. And, and that's okay. But I know that 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 is still kind of experiences that I have, like, if I'm going to have meetings with like, you know, like the big bosses, or I'm doing big presentations, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, do I, 
have to wear a blazer now. Oh, I need to make sure that maybe my hair is up because my hair is naturally really, really puffy and big. So sometimes I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, like do I, what do I do to make the others feel comfortable? And again, this is stuff that we were, that was instilled in us earlier on mm-hmm. as we were getting trained. This is stuff we were being told. And it's just, it takes, <laughs> it definitely takes a while to continue you know, breaking that. Yeah, this is what I call the ongoing good fight. <laughs> and what that really is, is, you know, it starts with you. Mm-hmm. It really starts with you. Because you can't just preach to the choir. You know, you got to also do your own work and push yourself to really be in line and, and practice what you're saying and what you believe in. Mm-hmm. And, and also find community like we're doing now with people who get you. Mm-hmm. They fucking get it. They mm-hmm. understand the struggle. And it be a collective thing we're doing together because it can be very isolating. Mm-hmm. But it definitely starts with you. I know we've been going on and on and on, and I love this topic. And I think ultimately at the end of it, how do we actually want to define professionalism? Mm. You know, what is a more, I guess, considerate, open-minded way of looking at what is considered professional? And you said it earlier mm-hmm. as I, I see it really as just respect. You know, mm-hmm. I, I professionalism to me means respect. Mm-hmm. And that can be interpreted and used in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. But I think it's respect for humanity. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to show up as my human self and I'm going to see you as your human self. Mm -hmm. And we are going to come together in this environment setting, whether that's professional or I guess even in a personal standpoint, you know, that's what it means to me. Mm Yes. Yes. I'm also getting kind of the word coming up for me is just humility, because in order for us to be able to practice that respect towards others, there's this humility component to that, that we have to really be open and be be very open to others' experiences, you know, at the same time, that is so important. It's huge. Yeah. Thank you, Kim, so much for staying with me on a Saturday morning, (laughs) very early morning with me, carving out pockets of your precious time and Mm -hmm. your precious thoughts and voice. I really do appreciate you so much as a friend, as a colleague, Mm -hmm. as a human being. So what I've been doing so far in this season, given that the majority of the episodes are not going to include Denise. Um, it is tradition in our first season to end with a mm-hmm. cultural goodbye, you know, something that honors our um, ancestry. And so I'm curious about ways that you and your family or your ancestors say goodbye to each other. Yeah. So we, within my family, we always do hug, kiss, and we bless each other. So we say bendiciones. So because you're not physically here, <laughs> I will give you an air hug and, you know, an air kiss on the cheek. And then we're done with bendiciones. I love that. Bendiciones, Kim. Thank you so much. Hasta la próxima. Bye. <laughs>